Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Which Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hey witches! We're dropping in before this episode to let you know that this Saturday, January 29th at 1pm Pacific, we're hosting a live Witch Please Tell Me for all our Patreon supporters, regardless of tier. If you've been thinking about becoming a patron, this is a great moment to do so. For just $2 a month, you can support Witch Please, attend this live Q&A, and get access to unedited episodes we've been sharing monthly for over a year. So like, there's 12 at least. You can also join at $5, $10, $13, or $30 a month, you know, depending on how fancy you're feeling. We can't wait to be joined by many of you this weekend over Zoom. Thanks for listening and for supporting the show. It means so much to us as we kick off 2022. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. Hey, Hannah. (laughs) Yeah, Marcel. (laughs) What's your motto for 2022? Let's discuss mottos as alternatives to resolutions in the sorting chat. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love this. I am on the record as being anti-resolution as an activity. I think it's part of the general sort of late capitalist Mm. self-improvement culture, which I disdain on every level. I am obviously committed to becoming worse every year. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that is what people say about getting older. They're like, oh, yeah, I used to care about politics, but then I got older, you know? And you're like, yeah, yeah. And in many ways, I do become worse every year (laughs) um, in the sense that I'm an increasingly unbearable version of myself. But like... (laughs) To whom? mm, To my enemies. Mm, To your enemies. So I have no recollection of what my motto for 2021 was. 
um, because as far as my brain is concerned, 2021 has been 100 years. Mm-hmm. And so what was my motto for last year? Hard to say. Um, maybe it was something along the lines of uh, maybe this one will be better. And <laughs> in that case, nope. But no. I am ready to come up with something appropriately uh, chaotic. For 2022? Yes. Do you remember what your 2021 motto was? I do. I don't remember how long I've been doing mottos. I got the idea from my friend Nikki Shafula, who introduced me to her motto, What a Time to Be Alive, (laughs) which is a motto that I embraced wholeheartedly. And I remember after What a Time to Be Alive, I had Every Day's a Miracle, which is... Another one that I also continue to use constantly. I feel like there's just some really, like, thick Jewish irony in these (laughs) mottos. It's true. Yes, yes. I know that for 2021, I decided that my motto would be not in 2021. (laughs) And I remember when I was saying this, um, people were like, what do you you mean by that? And I was saying it is... um, you were like, I'll tell you at some point, but not in 2021. It was like people were expecting the pandemic to go away. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Like pandemics, not in 2021. Or alternatively, will the pandemic go away? Not in not 2021. In 2021. <laughs> so it was very useful, but it wasn't catchy in the way that every day's a miracle and what a time to be alive. So I don't know. What do you think your motto is going to be? Okay. The first one that comes to mind. So I wrote a piece for the Taiyi. Which is a BC-based sort of culture magazine thing. I believe it's pretty prestigious, isn't it? It's good. Yeah, it's like a big deal. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. And my friend Andrea is an editor for them, and they reached out to me uh, and asked if I would write a piece about the concept of November, as in making a promise in the month of November that you will say no to everything. Mm -hmm. And ironically, I said yes to that, and then wrote a piece (laughs) about November. So in the piece, I sort of make this argument about the way that, like, the capitalist work ethic, as discussed in a previous episode <gasps> on shapeshifting, sort of produces in us this this constant desire to be doing more in the sense that, like, that laziness is bad, mm-hmm. which is a cursed idea because laziness is great. And so I'm kind of leaning in the direction of, like, make it November all year round. Like, I need a catchier version of this. But you know how many Christmas mm-hmm. songs are like, you can make it like Christmas every day if you believe. I need a version of that, but make it November every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What if I just said no every day? Say no every day. Say no every day. You've got it. We got there. That's it. That's it. I love it. I don't know what mine should be. Maybe we should crowdsource one for me. Mm. Who can suggest something that is as bleak? And ironic and Jewish as every day's a miracle and what a time to be alive. (laughs) Is that brisket? Is that brisket? Literally never eaten brisket in my life. So I'm just I'm just shooting my mouth off with stereotypes right now. I'm gonna get in trouble. Gonna have my Jewish card revoked. I really wanna suggest something for you that's like, what if I wasn't in trouble? (laughs) or like no one's actually mad at me how about 
what are they going to do? Fire me? <laughs> yeah, I like that. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll write that one down. What are they going to do? Fire me? Great. Great. Awesome. Here's to 2022. <laughs> that is, this is the energy we are bringing into this new year. Say no every day because you know what? What are they going to do? Fire you? <laughs> Just like a little tired and a little desperate. And a little bit ready to fuck shit up. Well, I'm told that, quote, we look at the present through a rear view mirror. We march backwards into the future, end quote. I'm pretty sure that means it's time for revision. Marcel, I don't know what that is a reference to. Well, since we're talking about media studies today, I've started us off with a quote by Canadian media theorist and famous Edmontonian Marshall McLuhan. Oh my God, that's amazing because you're a famous Edmontonian. And a Canadian media theorist. Oh, oh. less important, though. (laughs) So far, so far. Okay, so can you tell me what that quote means? I thought it was a pop lyric. (laughs) Uh, No, I absolutely cannot tell you what it means because explanations (laughs) are for transfiguration class. And this is revision. All right. I feel like that was a trap. But in order to ready myself for the future segment where I will learn a new thing, I will (laughs) give myself a good sense of the context out of which our discussion of the new thing appears. Hey, Hannah. You're talking like a media theorist now. I don't. Why? How? Marcel, your script is so far one long inside joke between you and the Wikipedia article you read to prepare for this episode. (laughs) Just read the script, Hannah. Fine. We're talking about media studies today, and this episode will undoubtedly draw on stuff we talked about in previous episodes like ideology, class, magical capital, and archives. Ooh. But... Probably the most pertinent episode to look back on is the one we did about that major media technology that shapes this entire podcast, which is books. Books? I really just need everybody to know that the joke of Marcel saying books like books appeared in one of my external (laughs) review letters for my tenure application. And that is really special to me. I love that our friendship is immortalized in your career. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, basically. So in that episode, I argued that there is nothing inherently special about books. Uh, The book is just a medium. It's been injected with cultural meaning and importance, bordering on the sacred, but there's like nothing inherently special or sacred about either its form. So like paper, glue, ink, cloth, thread, I guess. Thread. Or its content. Because books content can be literally anything. As we argued in the episode about books, it could be Jordan Peterson, you know? It could be. The least sacred thing there is. Exactly. So in that sense, buying and collecting books is largely a class performance. Yeah, totally. Speaking of class, can you tell us, 
Hannah, why it is that we decided to do a media studies episode. I mean, we started touching on a lot of aspects of media in our episode about Publix, and then we had so much to say about Publix that we couldn't even get to counter Publix, <laughs> let alone really dive into like how much media there is in this book. Mm-hmm. But like, this is a book about media. It is a book about newspapers. Mm-hmm. It is a book about the conflicting relationship between two different newspapers and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how people receive them both like physically like how they get to them but also how they like receive them as in read and interpret them mm-hmm. it is a book that is about multiple forms of communication technology we did a patreon bonus episode talking about what like cybersecurity can teach us about the Harry Potter books or maybe vice versa what the Harry Potter books can teach us about cybersecurity but you know we've got the coins that are spelled to communicate to the students we've got the dark mark appearing we've got uh communicating through flu powder and the flu powder network and how that gets controlled we've got archives, as we've Mm -hmm. already talked about, and the way that, you know, some information is allowed to circulate and flow and other information is contained. So there is so much in this book that is about the actual material constraints of how people communicate and how information gets around. (laughs) And I thought, you know, we haven't really talked about, like, capital C communication yet. And what better person to teach us about capital C communication <laughs> than some guy whose work I've basically never read, but I hear that he's pertinent to the discipline. Mm. And thus, this episode was born. Are you ready to teach me some things? Yes. Yes, I am. Great. <laughs> I want you to know that I'm basically just going to plagiarize your episode about books. Okay. So I might not learn that much. Maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> As we all know, I love making Marcel explain the work of famous white male theorists so that I can keep getting away with never reading them. (laughs) Who has the time? (laughs) Buckle up for a crash course in media studies. It's time for transfiguration class. Okay, listen, we cannot talk about media studies without talking about Canadian media theorist and famous Edmontonian Marshall McLuhan. I mean, that's the I, the impression that I've gotten, despite the fact that I do media studies <laughs> and have absolutely. I've read parts of one of his books. Coach, cut this out. <laughs> and we cannot, can not talk about Marshall McLuhan without listening to the Heritage Minute about him. Ooh, oh, but also we absolutely cannot listen to a Heritage Minute without first explaining to our non-Canadian listeners what a Heritage Minute is. Hannah, this is your bread and butter. (laughs) I mean, it kind of is gross. Anyway, uh, Canadian Heritage Minutes were a basically series of PSAs created by the Canadian government in the 
90s predominantly that were about really part of a sort of larger strategy in the wake of the Quebec referendum of installing a sort of culture of nationalism in Canadians because the notion of nationalism was quickly fragmenting in the wake of both rising uh, Indigenous fights for sovereignty as well as Quebec separatism. But they were just basically sort of these one-minute videos that were like an important thing in Canadian history. Just like a cheesy little narrative. And then at the end, it would be like part of our heritage and like a loon would swim by or something. Oh, incredible. They are so cheesy and goofy. And Canadians of a certain generation all have like passionate opinions about which the best and most important (laughs) ones are. And even if we don't remember who they're about, we will remember fragments of the minute itself. Like, I smell burnt toast, doctor. I'm gonna need those baskets back. (laughs) Do I remember the history? No. That's fine. Am I a nationalist? No, they failed. (laughs) But you know what? I love them. They did not convince me to be a nationalist. But I love them, and I'm so glad they exist. Yeah. So here we go. We're just going to listen to the uh, Heritage Minute about (laughs) Marshall McLuhan. TV sucks the brain right out of the skull. So next seminar, we'll prove the content of television. Professor McLuhan, Of course, the content of television is movies, but the message of television is what it does to us, the users. Are you saying that the medium is more important than the message it carries? No, no, no. The medium is not more important than the message. It, um... It's obvious. The medium is the message. The medium is the message? What does that mean? Well, of course, the medium is the message. It's what I... It's full of great ideas. Like print changed the shape of the world, remember? Yeah, we don't read newspapers. They get into them like a warm bath. This Canadian changed the way the world thinks about communications. If the medium is the message, then the content must be the audience. And of course, electronic information is turning the world into a global village. Take light bulbs. They're an information medium. So... McLuhan was a pretty influential thinker, and that minute centers on what I think we can call his greatest hit, the revelation that the medium is the message. Great. So to repeat the blonde in the sweater vest, the medium is the message? What does that mean? Beautifully done, Hannah. Wow. (laughs) Did you practice? (laughs) Absolutely not, no. (laughs) Okay, so the medium is the message, where to even start. And similar to Publix, we are not even going to scratch the surface. We're going to focus on the medium is the message, but please be aware for those of you who are actually expecting a crash course on media studies that like, this is like one chapter. Okay, McLuhan was really into the idea that all technologies extend and amputate the body. I know. So a shovel is an extension of my arm. My clothing is an extension of my skin. Microscopes and telescopes are extensions of the eye. Wheels are extensions of the feet, etc. Okay, so like my phone and my capacity to just Google whatever I want is an extension of my brain. Yes, and I think this is in particular where the amputation metaphor comes in.
I hate that metaphor. I know. McLuhan loves metaphors, by the way. One of the reasons that I think his work is so hard to read is because it's just like metaphor after metaphor after metaphor. He took the medium as the message and then like wrote a whole other argument called the medium is the massage. (laughs) So he's really into metaphors. Anyway, McLuhan was really deeply suspicious of what he called electric technologies. So that Heritage Minute that we listened to, that we all enjoyed together, that opens with the McLuhan character saying, TV sucks the brain right out of the skull. He once described electric technology as, and I quote, a giant ripping off of the flesh, end quote. Ew. And a lot of folks have pointed to the ways that his thinking about media really predicted the heavy reliance that we now have on digital media. So like my COVID vaccination record, for example, is on my phone and it is in the shape of a QR code. So my phone has kind of extended but also amputated my immune system. I have so many issues with this already. Yes. Amongst many other things, it's like deeply ableist. But like, I can't just to try to like start by wrapping my head around what he's arguing. Why was he particularly suspicious of electric technologies? So as a media theorist, McLuhan was really interested in the relationship between media and society. He ultimately found that society and its technologies are really inseparable. So he argued that the effect of any new technology is so powerful, so far-reaching, so all-encompassing, that it will actually change the culture that embraces it. And so this is really at the heart of the medium is the message. So he uses the example of the light bulb. A light bulb doesn't have content the way that, like, a book has content. But the light bulb, which is a medium that conducts electricity to create light— has fundamentally changed our society. It has shifted the hours that we work and learn and socialize and worship. The light bulb means that our days are no longer ordered by sunlight. So part of what I think troubled McLuhan about electric technology and electric media, what we, I think, today would call digital media, is exactly what you are talking about earlier, Hannah, the heavy reliance that we have on our phones. He, of course was not writing at a time when smartphones were a thing, but he is interested in this idea of extension and amputation, right? So a shovel extends the arm, but your brain still controls the arm, right? So digital media extend the central nervous system outside of the body, but you can't really extend your central nervous system in the same way that you extend your arm. I mean, brains and nervous systems, like... We think about them, particularly in relation to communication, differently than we think about bodies. I mean, that's part of our very old-fashioned mind-body divide, that even though the mind is itself, you know, a function of various chemical stews (laughs) and electronic impulses and hormonal zaps. I am a scientist. Can you tell? It sounds like you're a scientist. Yeah. Despite that... Philosophy is in many ways based on a sort of fundamental sensation that humans have that our brains, that our our capacity for thought, I guess, is just not the same as our other bodily functions. I think we tend to think that we have bodies and not that we are bodies. Mm. And I think that this was also something that troubled McLuhan 
but I think he maybe was thinking about it in a slightly different way. So like you said, we say we have bodies, not that we are bodies, but we are our minds. So like we can't really divide ourselves from our minds, from our from our capacity to think. So there's something more transformative or more insidious happening when something extends or amputates my nervous system than when it extends or amputates my arm. Yeah. What I think you're drawing attention to, Hannah, is the fact that McLuhan's writing shows a lot of anxiety about taking the thinking power out of the body and putting that somewhere else. So like extending the body with a tool is fine because you still control the thinking parts. But when we take the thinking parts away, we don't really extend those parts of our brains. We just give that power to electric technology. So I think another another issue that he has about electric technologies also has to do with like the rapidity of change. So the rapidity of change, development, and adoption, because remember, for McLuhan, a new technology will fundamentally change society. And so that means that if you are developing and adopting new technologies at lightning speed, you don't even know how your society is changing, and it's changing right before your eyes. This all feels so timely. Yeah. Well, I mean, there has been a real resurgence in McLuhan's work in late capitalist digital age. And I think that like a Marxist analysis would maybe point to the relationship between electric light and factory work and how cheap electricity has facilitated the mass production of relatively cheap smartphones, which have radically erased the division between public and private life. So like McLuhan's The Medium is the Message is telling us that if we want to understand society, we want to understand how it works we need to look at its media, and in particular, its communications media, and not focus on what the content of those media say or do. Gotcha. Gotcha. So like when we are talking about books from a communication or media studies perspective, we're recognizing that the creation and embrace of the book as a technology is way more important than any one book ever Mm -hmm. published. Like, books are just things. They're commodities like forks. Mm -hmm. And the ways in which they're meaningful to a society tells us more about that society than what's written in them. Yeah. That view on books really does help us to understand why highly literate cultures so often act in ways that are explicitly at odds with the very books that they value Mm. because it's about the medium of the book and the way that, for example, you know, in the West, in the 20th century, the book facilitated sort of emerging class divides and the sort of, you know, increasing role of post-secondary education and giving some people access to a certain tier of jobs while others were not able to access them. So it really was like what mattered was having a book or having access to books. So you just brought up the Marxist reading of like labor and technology. (laughs) So was McLuhan a Marxist? Apparently not. But I think maybe he was. Okay, listen. Secretly, accidentally. Secretly, accidentally, like a lot of us who 
proclaim to not be Marxists until we learn that our politics are actually Marxist. And then we're like, oh, well, that's embarrassing. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Like McLuhan is basically a historical materialist. He argues that to understand a society, you need to understand its technologies. And to understand its technologies, you need to look at them in context. And that is historical materialism. Yeah. Always historicize. Always historicize. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So we're going to get into some to some lists and some charts. Okay. You ready? I'm really ready. Okay. Technologies, including communications media, develop out of what came before them. Of course. All the previous stuff combines to make what McLuhan calls the context. Now, remember, I said McLuhan loves metaphors. McLuhan uses the metaphor figure and ground to help us visualize media and context, okay? So like a painting. Yeah, a painting with a person standing on a field, right? Figure and ground. The figure is the media, the ground is the context. Now, I don't actually find that very uh, sexy. So I would like you instead, this is very funny, I would like you instead to please picture a still image of Thor, god of thunder, son of Odin, slamming his hammer into the ground and creating a big old blast. So, like, the ground is blasted open. It's just a crater. Piles of earth lay in a ring around Thor like a wall. It's a still image. Imagine it's straight out of a comic book. Okay? I've got it. You got it? Uh You got it? All right. So, remember McLuhan's metaphor. The figure is the media and the ground is the context. And the media busted the the context open. Yes. So, our figure, Thor, with his hammer is the media, and the ground, which is a big old crater, is the context. So McLuhan says that both the figure and the ground are incomprehensible unless we look at them together, okay? So if you take Thor and his hammer out of that picture, we have no idea what caused that crater. We have no idea why the ground looks that way, okay? We know something happened, but we don't know what. We know that there was an impact. We don't know what. And then you take the crater out of the picture and we're like, what's Thor doing with his hammer? Could be anything. Could be playing whack-a-mole. He could be playing air guitar with Mew Mew. I can't remember what it's actually called, but I just remember that the character Darcy in the first Thor movie calls it Mew Mew. And I really like that. Yeah, Mew Mew sounds right. So Thor is media and the ground is context. We can see that the media was able to have an impact, right? But why? Why was the media able to have this impact? Because of all of the media, technology, etc. that came before it. So if we're extending the metaphor, we might think about how the ground was extra susceptible to the figure, Thor and his hammer, because it had recently been plowed, right? So like it dusts up in this particular way because it is loose soil and not concrete. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the figure in the ground is reminding us that the impact of the figure on the ground is as it is because of everything that was done to the ground before the figure showed up there. Gotcha. So like you're looking at the still image and you're thinking like, 
oh, yeah, you know, this media just happened to have this impact on this ground. But in fact, in order to really understand what's happening in that moment, we have to recognize that there is a history that precedes this moment that led up to the context in which the hammer hit the ground. Exactly. Thor Odinson's impact is a combination of both his action and the nature context of the ground. Okay. So I will use an example from contemporary communications media, Twitter. Mm-hmm. I know her. You know her. Twitter, I hardly know her. That was a joke. Beep boop. <laughs> Twitter could never have preceded newspapers, right? The internet didn't exist when newsprint was invented. But Twitter also could never have preceded online message boards or even comments on digital news platforms, because those things created the context that led to the development of Twitter. And so likewise, we might think about TikTok and how TikTok could never have proceeded before my favorite of all of the communications media, Vine. (laughs) We all miss Vine. So yeah, so TikTok could never have preceded Vine or YouTube or film or recorded music or, dare I say, Live theater. 100%, right? Like TikTok is also, like dancing is also a medium. (gasps) Dancing? (laughs) Sorry, I'm thinking of Billy Elliot. Bali? You want to do Bali? Friggin' Bali. (laughs) Got the thumbs up from Coach for that one. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so we've got Thor standing Mm. there, Mm -hmm. and he's got his hammer. I like to, like, I'm making these noises as though I find Chris Hemsworth even remotely attractive as Thor, and I absolutely do not. I am a Loki gal all the way. Of course you are. Wow, that is the least surprising sentence I have ever heard. (laughs) Anyway, carry on. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the hammer part of this metaphor is the part that I'm still sort of missing. Like, I understand how we've, like, led up to the field. Like, we got a field and the field's been plowed and the dirt is loose and so it goes up higher. But, like, the hammer's, like, the effect that the new medium Mm. has. So, Mm -hmm. like, how do we know how powerful the hammer is going to be? Like, how do we know what the effects of the new medium are going to be? This is a great question. The last thing that I'm going to talk about here in this segment is a pedagogical tool that McLuhan developed in order to answer exactly this question. Oh, okay. McLuhan was a teacher. Oh, we saw that Heritage Minute. Yeah, exactly. So like, so for those of you who are only listening to the Heritage Minute and are not going to trouble to watch the video online, you really should. Anyway, he's a professor with a cardigan. So McLuhan developed this tool which is called the tetrad of media effects. A tetrad (laughs) is basically a chart. The energy here of this is going to be on the exam is so funny to me. It's a chart that represents four key questions. Question one, what does the medium enhance? The strength of Thor's arm. Question two, what does the medium make obsolete? Thor's fist. Question three, what does the medium retrieve that had been obsolesced 
earlier. A hoe. Another smaller hammer. Uh, (laughs) Another smaller hammer. (laughs) (laughs) Question the fourth. What does the medium flip into, potentially reverse into, when pushed to its extremes? Oh. Oh, 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 oh. Okay, so, like, the hammer, when hammered hard enough, makes lightning happen. Ooh, okay. Yeah, sure. I think this metaphor might be falling apart. Can we do this with Twitter instead? Okay, we might do it with Twitter. That's a good idea. But I want us to do it with TikTok first. Okay. First, can you explain this chart that I'm looking at? Yes. Which is shaped like an X, which is very confusing. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. Okay. So, So that listeners can visualize it. A tetrad basically looks like two band-aids crossing to create an X. And so that's five diamonds, all right? The two sides and then the center, right? Okay, so the center diamond gives us the name of a medium. The two diamonds on the left, top and bottom, are enhancement, that's top, and retrieval, that's bottom. Those are both qualities of the medium, The two diamonds on the right of the tetrad are the reversal on the top Mm -hmm. and then the obsolescence, which is the bottom. Okay. Those are both the ground or the context. Okay. 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 So um, the Wikipedia article gives the example of radio. Okay. So um, what does the medium amplify? Radio amplifies news and music via sound. What does the medium drive out of prominence? Radio reduces the prominence of print and the visual. What does the medium recover or retrieve that was previously obsolesced or lost? Radio returns the spoken word to the forefront. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, what does the medium reverse into or flip into when pushed to its limit? Acoustic radio flips into audiovisual TV. Okay. Okay. So let's do that test run with TikTok. Hannah, are you ready? What does TikTok enhance? It enhances uh, the sharing of video at like editing of video i mean it enhances video um and makes video more shareable i think it also enhances amateur video mm. particularly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i like that that's cool what does tiktok make obsolete okay tiktok is making obsolete Certainly some other sort of visually focused social media in some ways driving down Instagram or forcing Instagram to respond and become more like more like TikTok. So it's making sort of still visual images obsolete and replacing them with video. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. You're very good at this. It's like you work in media. What does TikTok retrieve that had been obsolesced earlier. I think one thing that TikTok retrieves is the sort of like 
early internet culture of like amateur video and meme making mm-hmm. that had a lot of a lot more sort of agency for people to like creatively make things totally yeah i think maybe it also retrieves the childhood culture of when your parents friends come over and you put on a play for them i love that's that. what tiktok feels like to me <laughs> Totally, totally. I'm also thinking that TikTok, it retrieves dance. It has retrieved dance and it's retrieved, it's literally retrieved like a lot of older music, right? Like people keep talking about these moments where it's like, oh, Fleetwood Mac has gone viral because, you know, this one guy made this video of skateboarding. dance is such a good answer. And it's yours. I just uh, took it out of one place and put it in another. (laughs) Yeah, you retrieved it. I retrieved it. Ah. Okay, last one. What does TikTok flip into or reverse into if pushed to its extremes? Now, this one's tricky because this feels like you kind of have to guess, right? Like this is easier to do with historical media when you can see how they altered their context and their culture in order to drive society towards something else. Yeah. Think of number four as like the thesis statement, right? Like the other three are kind of like you can get evidence for those pretty easily. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one is sort of like, okay, so like I now need to make an educated guess about this thing. I think one possibility of what we could think of TikTok as doing is to sort of flip into almost like a a culture of 24-hour digital surveillance because so much of TikTok is about filming everything you do, filming everything everybody does. Um your camera just always being on you and always being on. And so I could see TikTok flipping into like a culture in which like you don't even have the option to turn your camera video off anymore. All cameras come with the video running and the video is always running. Because, you know, you never know when something will be happening and you will wish that you had been filming. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, when I was thinking about this... Last night when I was trying to <laughs> trying to come up with answers to these, I was like, fuck, I don't know. Um, I was thinking about how um, like TikTok is really interesting because it is so many different media all sort of crammed together. And and so like convergence culture. Convergence culture. Yeah. And how one of the things that I think it maybe flips into we might think of as like news media in a sense. Like it's not designed to be news media, but kind of when pushed to its extreme, it's like this is where people go to get their news. But I I don't oh, know. I like that. I like that. That's definitely something we could say about Twitter. Mm-hmm. That Twitter mm-hmm. flipped has flipped into or reversed into essentially I think reversed into becoming the newspaper. Like it both made the newspaper obsolete and has reversed into being the newspaper again. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, man. McLuhan is just like rolling over in his grave. He has so much to say. 
I am really interested in how like newspapers continue to figure into how we are talking about this, despite the feeling that they are like a really old medium. But um, I would actually just really like to talk about the newspapers we encounter in the wizarding world. We should definitely do that. There's one other thing that I just want to comment on when it comes to this chart and the X shape. Yeah, because that's weird. It is weird. The four questions represented in this tetrad are supposed to be considered simultaneously. They're not hierarchical and they're not successive or chronological. So none of those four questions needs to come first. You can answer them in whatever order, right? And so that's why it's shaped like an X so that there isn't a clear first. The only thing that's clearly distinguished is media. Yeah, it's at the center and everything is sort of forking off it. Exactly. I find this really challenging because I like the order of the questions and I find it really annoying that they don't actually line up with the diamonds on the chart. And so if I may, I would like to posit that the medium is annoying. <laughs> I mean, McLuhan's annoying. That's definitely the case, but <laughs> I think he's useful. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially mm-hmm. for thinking about the way in which media is driving social transformation at a rate that is faster than any of us have the time or capacity to reckon with, that we literally don't know what this is doing to us. And things are over before we've even had the chance to process them. He's got this whole bit about how the repetition of the image creates an icon and the icon is a corporate or a public image and like removes the personal or the private. And I just find that so fascinating considering the ways that like we are expected to be public people all the time now and how like... I am my avatar. I am my handle. Like, these things are me. But we're not going to talk about those things. (laughs) You know who else is expected to be a public person all the time? (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Who? It's Harry. Oh, wow. Let's talk about it in owls. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. If the medium is the message, then the message of these owls must be hoots. Ah! Huh? Yeah, that's good. That was a good joke. I liked it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, listen, I'm going to be completely honest with you, Hannah. I am really nervous about this section because I'm not sure how to put McLuhan's media theory to work in the magical world. Here's what I came up with. Okay. The Ministry of Magic Memos. Because they are paper airplanes and Mr. Weasley tells Harry that they used to use owls. You wouldn't believe the mess. So... The Ministry of Magic Memos enhance written communication. They make obsolete owls. They 
now here's where I get lost. They retrieve the emphasis on written communication that may have been lost. Or they re- they retrieve the the direct sort of hand-to-hand passing of memos, right? Like 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 passing passing notes that like you're basically like the technology of a paper airplane is like I have a thing and I pass it straight to you. And and it's got more of that feeling of like passing notes in class. Whereas owls are like the mail carriers of the wizarding world. So like they've got an intervening individual who you need to like give and and pay. So they like retrieve a like direct exchange of knowledge. Okay. Okay. So then what do they flip into when pushed to their extremes? When pushed? This is where I'm like, fuck, I don't know, man. Like, to go back for a moment, like, radio, when pushed to its extreme, flipped into television. Why? I don't know, man. I mean, part of it is that radio's goal was to capture attention and engage all of the senses as intensely as possible to sort of minimize distracted listening, right? Like, radio wanted people not to be putting it on in the background, but to be gathering at particular times. And so they increasingly leaned into programming that was like audio dramas, for example, that would like gather people around the radio at a particular time. You know, the reason for that has a lot to do with like the financial models of media, the use of advertising, how you want attention and engagement in order to to drive advertising. And so the logical extreme of that desire for radio to capture all of the senses is for it to literally add more senses in. Okay. Okay. So when we think about the ministry memos, what they're trying to do mm-hmm. is cut out the middleman, right? The owls were making a mess. And so yeah. <laughs> the memos want to like, as best they can, get communication straight from one person to the other person with minimal sort of mediation in between. And so flipped into or or pushed to their extremes, ministry memos flip into howlers? Oh my God, because they're direct personal communication. And so the extreme of a direct personal communication is a howler. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the howler is is in many ways the closest thing we have to like a phone call, totally. right? Because like yes. it's the actual like it's an actual voice. Like you write it down but it becomes a voice yelling at you, right? As though to strip out the mediation of print. It is basically a voice memo, right? You just like I don't know how you do it, but you like scream into the envelope. I mean, it's magic. You do it with magic. <laughs> you do it with magic, as you do. <laughs> so the other really interesting thing about the presence of the ministry memos is that they remind us that even though communication technology often feels like it is stagnant in the wizarding world, it is not. It is transforming and the nature of its transformations are also transforming culture. So, you know, for example, probably the switch to the ministry memos, the paper airplanes, allows for the expansion of the bureaucratic system 
at the ministry. Oh, yeah. Right? That like you can actually have more communication, more roles, more paperwork required because it is now easier for that paperwork to make its way around. Because the paperwork doesn't depend on the number of owls available, right? Like we never see an example where like Harry goes to the owlery and there isn't an owl available, but we absolutely see moments where the owls are no longer safe, right? Because the correspondence is being monitored. And so if we think about paper airplanes, why don't, anyway, I was going to say, why don't they come up with that? But they, but they do, they do come up with an alternative and it's the coins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we could do the same thing for, I think, a few other sort of new media that were introduced to in this book, right? So we could do it for the coins. So what do the coins, these are the coins that that Dumbledore's army used to signal to one another when they're going to meet. So what do the coins enhance? They enhance secret meetings. They enhance revolution. They enhance <laughs> written... They, I mean, they enhance oral communication, right? Like, because otherwise you would just tell each other. But the idea is that they can't say it out loud because they don't know who's listening. So or they enhance secret communication, whether spoken or written. <laughs> okay, yeah, I like that. They enhance secret communication. Yeah. They they enhance um, clandestine. Clandestine <laughs> communication, yeah. <laughs> what do they make obsolete? They make obsolete spoken communication. Yeah. Or the need to pass notes. Yes. Spoken and written. Spoken and written communication about this particular topic. What do they retrieve? Okay, so I'm going to say, assuming that we can only have one thing per answer or... Mm -hmm. One answer per thing. I'm going to say that they, <laughs> this is very scientific and professional. <laughs> Science. I'm, I'm going to say that they make obsolete spoken communication, but they retrieve written communication. I'm going to say they make obsolete both spoken and written communication, and they retrieve a pre-alphabetic <gasps> form of iconic communication. Are you saying they retrieve runes? Yeah, runes or petroglyphs or, right? Like there are lots and lots of forms of communication that were about leaving a mark on something yeah. to signal to other people, you know, what's coming this way. Or, you know, I'm going to give you my ring so that somebody else knows that you're that I vouch for you or I'll give you a particular coin or a right that there's there's these other forms of communication that for the most part have been rendered obsolete by print that kind of replaced everything else but there are these older forms of like passing around objects or writing on surfaces you know like writing on on rocks or on particular geographical locations totally Okay, I think I actually have an answer for oh, what, yeah. they what do they flip into. into? <laughs> they flip into the dark mark. They flip into like brands. <laughs> oh, they absolutely <laughs> flip into the dark mark. That's so smart. And that, I mean, this is right now we are getting at exactly why this is useful for this book, right? Because 
The fact that they flip into the dark, Mark, when pushed to their extremes, brings us back to that idea that secret communication itself can breed forms of political extremism, that that both the sort of the context here is a context in which you do not trust your government and these new technologies push sort of social change in which people are able to gather and act in ways that cannot be seen by the government. But that gathering and acting is not always necessarily going to be for the better, right? That it might be sort of the insidious rise of fascist power. That's why McLuhan says that if you want to understand what is happening in a society, you need to look at its communications technologies and not the content, because the content could be ideologically good or evil. Mm -hmm. My ideological interpretation of good or evil. (laughs) 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 Like, it doesn't actually matter what the content is, because the function is still the same. The state of the society has still created this need that is being addressed in this particular way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it does speak to, you know, the number of things that we've pointed out that render obsolete, um, like, I was about to say mouth-to-mouth communication, but that, that is something else. (laughs) Mouthy. Um, Like face-to-face communication also points to the way that the restriction of freedom in in Hogwarts in particular, but also in the wizarding world at large in this book, are the context that is driving technological innovation, that people are coming up with these new ways to communicate because of the way that the political context is transforming the meaning of existing media. So that, for example, I think helps us understand the way that the Daily Prophet is the context of the quibbler. Oh my God, yes. That we don't need the quibbler unless we have a Daily Prophet that is so clearly managed by the ministry. That is itself mirrored in the book. Like we don't even get introduced to the quibbler as as a medium until the daily prophet starts to be useless. Yeah, absolutely, right? That 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 it's literally reproduced at the level of narrative that in the book prior to this one we are introduced to the concept of the daily prophet and at that point it is introduced to us to fulfill a need that we narratively have, which is a need for an expanded sense of the wizarding world. And I mean, that's historically what newspapers did themselves, is that they both responded to and enhanced the sense of an increasingly global Global village. Yeah, global village. One might say that's a McLuhan reference, everybody, just in case, <laughs> just in case you are cooler than us and didn't know that. Um, <laughs> uh, right. But like newspapers are about both sort of bringing in news from what's happening in the rest of the world, but also sort of, you know, facilitating a sense of a public who are all aware of what's going on. And so you know, we don't need the newspaper as a medium as readers until we are introduced really to the idea of publics in the book previous to this one. And now this book, we not only 
do we have publics now? But we start to have counter publics. Counter publics. And so now the newspaper is the field and the quibbler, like the counter newspaper, zine, indie mag, whatever we want to call the quibbler, becomes the new medium against that field of the newspaper. So the quibbler is Thor with his hammer, yeah. Mew Mew, <laughs> and the Wizarding World in Books one, two, three, and four are the ground. I mean, we can't we can't add Thor back into this metaphor. It's why it's bucking wildly under us. But we can say, right? Like, what does the quibbler enhance? Which is like op-eds, um, opinion-based communication, uh, unsubstantiated communication, first-person accounts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interviews. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I don't know if we have enough context to know what it makes obsolete. But like, presumably... It makes obsolete editorials. Mm, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because editorials in this book really move from the prophet where it has become impossible to say things that disagree with the ministry. They move from the yes. prophet into the quibbler, which is why we get that piece of, you know... Harry from his own perspective in the quibbler rather than the prophet. Mm-hmm. What do they retrieve? Gossip. Cool. And what do they flip into when pushed to their extremes? Um, parades. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. What do they flip into when pushed to their extremes? One sec. Okay. Soapboxes. Soapboxes. Conspiracy theories. I think conspiracy theories. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that it's significant that this space that is needed because of the way that the increasingly unfree communication environment of the ministry squashing editorial and in turn sort of having to reinvigorate these like gossip networks. But that is very clearly facilitating not only the possibility of like Harry getting his message out outside of the official lines of communication, but also like truly wacky conspiracy theories. And that's the case with like media that like speak truth to power or put control over communication back in the hands of the people. Like we see this with social media that on the one hand, it provides this possibility for people to speak out without being gatekept for voices that have been historically kept out of the media to have a platform. And on the other hand, we see that it has led to this like real loss of faith in experts to a sort of increasing inability to tell the difference between fact and fiction. And that's, you know, that's the quibbler. The idea of do your own research when it comes to something like climate change or a global pandemic is bonkers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But we can understand, like, I think the quibbler helps us understand how we get to that situation, right? That the context for that is a context in which communication is not free enough or it is overly constrained by a small number of people who have a disproportionate amount of control around what can and cannot be said. And the ministry, rather than being like, oh, shit, are like, cool, time to clamp down even more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Which is where we yeah. get, like, you could almost then think, like, the quibbler is the ground for the educational decrees. 
Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there are other things that are the ground for the educational decrees, right? Like the the dark mark is the ground for the educational decrees. The coins are the ground for the educational decrees. The like the flu powder network is the ground. Like the ground is made up of all of those things, right? Yeah. They all combine to create the context out of which the educational decrees emerge. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a a useful metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Metaphors are so useful. I mean, it is, in general, I think, really useful to think about this way that, like, that we have to understand how the ground became the way it did and how the ground itself is made up of previous communication technologies. And that we also have to understand how, like, figures become ground in turn, right? And this is the the relationship, the constantly shifting relationship. And that helps us understand not only why and how communication is changing so rapidly within these books, but also, you know, you alluded to this, also sort of narratively how we as readers encounter new communication technologies in the wizarding world when the narrative context or the narrative ground has become such that we need them. Yeah, that's so true. I know we've been talking about communications technologies. Can we talk about wands for a second? Yeah, absolutely. Because in in previous episodes, we've we've talked about the ways that wand use, it like monopolizes magic in a certain way that like People can use magic without wands, but once you have a wand, that wand sort of, it makes obsolete wandless magic. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know, like, I guess, like when I was thinking about when I was, when I was putting together the notes for this episode, I was thinking about like, are wands the, the most important like technology that we have? In the wizarding world. And I think in a lot of ways they are because I think that they're like the best example of a technology that has clearly and fundamentally reshaped this society. But only if you know or if you recognize that these kids can do magic without wands. Yeah, that these kids can do magic without wands and that that becomes obsolete as soon as they have access to the wands and that other magical creatures can do magic without wands but want access to the wands because they know that the wands will render their like will will massively extend right their power but that wands as a technology have also amputated wordless magic and wandless magic i think just wandless magic have also amputated wandless magic such that nobody really, you know, explores that, values that. We don't even have a word for it, right? We we just call it wandless magic. But like, if it was called like twinkle fingers or something, like it makes well, it's obsolete. Called twink- it's called twinkle, twinkle fingers. fingers now. <laughs> okay, so it, it enhances magic. It makes obsolete Twinkle, Twinkle fingers. fingers. Um, do we have any sense of what it retrieves? Oh, it might retrieve like earlier 
more aggressive restrictions on like who's allowed to practice magic <gasps> and who isn't. Oh my God, totally. Yeah. Yeah, that instead it becomes, it's not like, oh, it's illegal to be you. It's just like, well, you can't have a wand now. And ha not having a wand is basically like not being a person in the wizarding world. So we don't need those other kinds of restrictions anymore. That's right. But when we think about what it flips into, I think the thing that immediately comes to mind for me is um, like the Deathly Hallows mm -hmm. and the way that the 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 Elder Wand in particular, mm -hmm. and the way that the extreme of wands as a form of sort of limiting and siphoning power off to a small number of people is one wand to rule them all, one wand to bind them, right? It's it's the, the extreme of wands become synonymous with power is one incredibly powerful wand and a fight over who controls that one wand. Right. Like the elder wand, in a sense, makes obsolete the magician because the wand itself is so powerful. It doesn't matter what your own skill is. And in some ways, the elder wand, depending on how it's used, renders obsolete like like all wizards. Um, but we're getting ahead of ourselves in a way that really speaks to how useful this has been as a as a frame. I'm deeply relieved. I was very, very nervous. <laughs> there's honestly, there's nothing worse as an instructor than preparing a lecture and getting to the end of the lecture and being like, I don't know how this is going to be useful to my students. <laughs> well, that's why you've got me, Marcel. I am your student and I am always sure to find something useful in what you bring to me. I love being a team. <laughs> it's great. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. You can find the rest of our episodes by heading over to NotSorryWorks.com or, of course, wherever podcasts are found. If you want to hang out with us more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at OhWitchPlease. And we pay attention to those accounts sometimes. As often as we can muster. Also, Hannah, you said Witch Please really cutely. And I just want to publicly acknowledge how cute that was. Witch Please is produced in partnership with Not Sorry and distributed by Acast. Special thanks to Not Sorry for having us and to our team player of a producer. Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. If you're into the podcast, why don't you let us know by dropping a review on Apple Podcasts? Listen, listen, more of you are Patreon supporters at this point than have reviewed us on Apple Podcasts. I don't understand how that's possible, <laughs> but obviously we love the Patreon support and it's the best and you're all the best and we have absolutely nothing to complain about. But... The reviews are actually really, really helpful for other people finding <laughs> the podcast. So if you would like to give us a belated Christmas gift, could you go leave a review? Anyway, you have to leave one if you want to hear Marcel belatedly attempt to find the meaning of Christmas encoded in your usernames. Thanks. 
this week to Elf on the Shelf. Emin is a real name. Always watching. Okay, and listen, while I'm at it, I want to echo Hannah's thank you and appreciation to all of our Patreon supporters because you have made this show possible. We are recording this episode in the midst of our Patreon holiday drive. Did we hit our goal of $5,000 a month by January 1st, thereby unlocking a live recording of Which Please Tell Me with all patrons invited to attend? We have no idea. But gosh, we sure hope we did. I bet we did. If you want to join the hallowed ranks of our patrons and thus get to come to that (gasps) amazing life, which please tell me that is probably happening, don't forget to head over to patreon.com slash oh which please. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But until then, later witches!